Before we begin, I wanted to share an exciting announcement. For the very first time, Once Upon a Crime will be coming to the UK. I'll be on Podcast Row at CrimeCon UK that will be held in London on September 25th and 26th, 2021. It's not too early to get your tickets, and you won't want to miss it. So many incredible presenters and special guests from the true crime world want to spend the weekend with you at the world's number one true crime event. You'll rub elbows with investigators, documentary filmmakers, forensics experts, plus a room full of your very favorite true crime podcasters. I'll be on Podcast Row, and I can't wait to meet you. Get all the information and register at crimecon.co.uk. And when you register, make sure to use my promo code onceupon 21 for 10% off your registration. That's crimecon.co.uk. And use onceupon 21 for 10% off. And I'll see you there. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this month's series, Chopped, I'm sharing cases of chefs, cooks, and restaurateurs who turned away from the stove and toward a life of crime. In today's episode, we'll travel to Macon, Georgia, in the good old 1950s. In that time and place, there was a young woman who owned a popular restaurant. Anjet Donovan Lyles, a young widow, was well-liked and respected by the locals who frequented her restaurant as much for her food as for her charming company. So when the people closest to her began dying agonizing deaths due to mysterious illnesses, no one at first suspected anything nefarious. But Anjet's bizarre behavior fascination with what was described as voodoo, and her newfound wealth all caused citizens of Macon to turn a more suspicious eye towards the restaurant's proprietress. This is the last chapter in the series, Chopped, the case of Anjette Donovan-Lyles. Anjet's was a popular lunch spot in downtown Macon. Located on Mulberry Street, the restaurant, named after its owner, drew people through its doors to enjoy traditional Southern fare, as well as some of the best desserts in the city. Anjet Lyles was an attractive brunette who always wore bright red lipstick. She was well-dressed in outfits that called to mind Lucille Ball's on The Lucy Show, full-skirted dresses, a string of pearls, and low-heeled pumps, the height of fashion in the mid-1950s. Anjet always had a quick smile and friendly hello for her customers. She often stopped to chat at one table or another, picking up compliments from diners about her homemade banana pudding and lemon pies. The word often used to describe Anjet was charming. Those who knew Anjet were also impressed with how the young woman had not only managed to survive, but thrive after being left a widow with two young children to raise at the young age of 26. Anjet Donovan was born to William and Jetta Donovan on August 23, 1925, in Macon, Georgia. She was one of three children and the Donovan's only daughter. Anjet had a way of being able to bend not only her parents, but also her brothers to her will. Her parents could afford to give her a nice life. Her father owned a produce company, and the family was financially comfortable, if not wealthy. Anjet was given a good education. 
School was never her favorite thing, although she was gifted with a natural intellect and would become proficient at a number of things, as long as the subject was interesting to her. At the age of 22, Anjette married Ben F. Lyles, Jr. Ben had served in the Army during the war. Two years after the war ended, Ben and Anjette were wed. Ben was very close to his mother, Julia Lyles, especially after his father died. Ben Lyles Sr. was the owner of a restaurant called Lyles. The restaurant had become a fixture in downtown Macon, where the Lyles family was well known. After Ben Sr. died, Ben Jr. and his mother continued to run the business. After marrying Ben, Anjette would also work at Lyles. Customers enjoyed having the pretty waitress serve them. Anjette seemed to love being at the restaurant and the attention she received from customers. Ben and Anjette's first child, Marcia, was born in 1948. Anjette often brought the toddler into the restaurant, and customers doted on the pretty child with brown curls. But Anjette's husband was afflicted with poor health. He had contracted an illness during the war. When Ben returned home, his condition deteriorated and resulted in rheumatic fever. He was in constant pain and soon could no longer work. The Veterans Administration provided him with monthly benefits, but Ben became depressed and irritable and began drinking excessively. It rankled him that his wife and mother were bringing in the majority of the income from their work at the restaurant. He began gambling with his pension money, enticed by the fool's dream of easy money. Of course, he lost most of the time, dwindling his family's resources further. Anjette and Ben began to argue over money and his drinking and gambling. Unable to pay his debts, Ben decided the only way out was to sell the restaurant. In June of 1951, he sold Lyles for the low, low price of just $2,500, or about $25,000 in today's dollars, a very cheap price for an established restaurant in a prime downtown location. Ben sold the restaurant without consulting Anjette, and when she found out, she was furious. To add to the marital stress, Anjette had just given birth to their second child, Carla. Now Anjette was mother to an infant and a three-year-old and was forced to try and make ends meet on a shoestring budget. So when the VA cut Ben's benefit amount by 90%, it sent the young family reeling. The government now deemed Ben fit to work, and his monthly stipend would only amount to a tenth of what he'd been previously receiving. Anjette was forced to ask her family for handouts in order to cover their basic necessities. At the end of the year, Ben Lyles fell ill once again, but this time it was not a recurrence of his rheumatic fever. This illness came on suddenly, and its symptoms were severe. Ben began bleeding profusely from the nose and mouth. His arms and legs swelled up horrendously, and he became delirious. He was hospitalized and examined by doctors, but they were hard-pressed to figure out what was the cause of his illness. Ben suffered increasingly severe symptoms his body would alternately go rigid and then twitch uncontrollably. This continued for weeks before he finally fell into a coma. Never regaining consciousness, Ben Lyles died on January 25, 1952. His death certificate listed encephalitis as the cause of death. Anjette, just 26 years old, moved back to her parents' home with her two young daughters. She took a job waiting tables and bookkeeping, but she saved every penny she could. And Jet Lyles was determined to purchase the Lyles family's former restaurant for herself, which, in her mind, had been stolen from her.
Anjette, now living at home with her parents, saved every penny from her job waitressing and bookkeeping at a local restaurant. The bookkeeping position also gave her insight into running a restaurant and how to turn a profit. In April of 1955, just a little over three years after Anjette was widowed and four since the Lyles family restaurant was sold by her husband, Ben, Anjette was able to buy the restaurant back with her own savings. Her husband had sold the business for just $2,500, but Anjette paid $12,000 to get it back. As it was now hers alone, she renamed it Anjette's Restaurant. Before long, the restaurant became the most popular eatery in town. It was even more popular than the original restaurant had been. Its clientele included businessmen who walked over from their downtown offices for a quick lunch, judges and attorneys from the nearby courthouse, and civic leaders from City Hall. In addition, as Macon's airport was located close by, Anjets also drew in many young airline pilots. Just after the restaurant's grand opening, one of these men became smitten with its owner. Joe Neal Gabbert was 26 years old and a native of El Paso, Texas. He had served as a Marine in the Korean War. When he returned home, he was hired to fly commercial airplanes for Capital Airways, based out of Macon, Georgia. New to the city, he had been invited by a group of his fellow pilots to check out a new restaurant opening. Anjet greeted the men and spent a bit of time talking and flirting. Joe Neal, who was called Buddy, was instantly attracted to Anjet. Perhaps it was because he was new to the city and lonely, or perhaps because he was a romantic, but in any case, he started taking most of his meals at Anjet's when he was in town. Before long, he declared to the young widow, I'm going to marry you. He and Anjet began going out to clubs and restaurants together, and Buddy was even able to get her comped airline tickets to meet him in Texas, his home state. Another time, he flew her out to New Mexico, where he had a layover. Just two months after meeting Buddy, Anjet returned from New Mexico, a married woman. She and Buddy had tied the knot without informing family or friends. Their marriage was definitely a surprise to those close to them, but at that time, it was more socially acceptable for a woman to marry quickly. The conventional wisdom in 1955 was that a woman needed a husband to support and protect her. So Buddy and Anjet's whirlwind courtship didn't raise too many eyebrows. One thing that did raise eyebrows, however, was Anjet's interest in fortune-telling, psychics, and magic. She would sometimes drag a friend to have their fortunes read, and she kept lots of candles around her home and business. It was Anjet's belief that candles could be used to manifest desires into reality. Of course, Georgia, as part of the Bible Belt, in the 1950s was predominantly Christian and specifically Baptist. Beliefs and practices of this type were considered sinful and scandalous. Anjet, though, always headstrong, didn't try to hide her beliefs. Some would begin to whisper that Anjet practiced voodoo. Staff at her restaurant would report that she lit candles and whisper to them in some type of ritual. In fact, Anjet was performing a type of magic. She lit different colored candles for different needs or wants, green for money, red for love, etc. She then placed a note under the candle that listed what she wanted to manifest. Anjet would then whisper to the lit candle, quote, telling it what to do, end quote. Anjet was still living with her mother, her father having since died, when she brought her new husband home. The couple seemed to get along well enough, but Buddy was away frequently flying around the country for Capital Airways, so their time together was limited. Five months after they wed, 
Buddy took a leave from work to undergo a minor operation on his wrist. Shortly after returning home from the hospital, he suddenly spiked a high fever. He broke out in a rash that spread all over his body. It was a weeping rash and incredibly painful. Still, Anjet didn't call a doctor or take him to the hospital, but continued to care for him at home. When his arms and legs began to swell so much that it appeared as if they might burst, Buddy was finally returned to the hospital. Tests were conducted, but in a haunting reminder of her first husband's demise, doctors could not pinpoint the exact cause of Buddy's illness. The pain became so intense, he begged the doctors to let him die. He was transferred to the Veterans Hospital in Dublin, Georgia. Nurses on duty who cared for Buddy felt sad witnessing the young, formerly healthy man become so debilitated. They could only imagine how distraught his wife must be. So when Anjette began to voice her belief with hospital staff that her husband, quote, probably wasn't going to make it, they assumed it must simply be how she was coping with her fear and anxiety over her husband's condition. These statements could be explained as a normal reaction for a woman who has already been widowed once before, but Anjette also approached another patient in the hospital to ask a curious question. She had discovered that the man was an attorney, and she asked for his help in convincing her husband to draw up a will. The attorney said he would, but when he entered Buddy Gabbert's room and saw how very ill he was, he didn't have the heart and walked out without speaking to him. After a few days in the Dublin hospital, Buddy's condition began to improve. He was released to go home and returned to Macon with Anjette. But almost immediately, his symptoms returned and intensified. The fever, rash, and swelling all reappeared. He began vomiting continually and could not keep any food down. His illness progressed to the point that Buddy could not do anything for himself, yet Anjette had not called his doctor or taken him to the hospital. She did, however, hire a nurse to help care for him. Jenny Ingle did everything she could to help Mr. Gabbert, but repeatedly told Anjette that he needed to see a doctor. The nurse fed Buddy intravenously, but his veins collapsed on November 30th, and she was no longer to get an IV in. At this time, Nurse Ingle insisted that Anjette take her husband to the hospital, saying he would die if he wasn't admitted and soon. The evening after the nurse pleaded with Anjette to have her husband admitted, Anjette called an ambulance to transport Buddy to the veterans' hospital. By this time, however, there was little doctors could do. Buddy Gabbert was barely holding on to life. Anjette began exhibiting bizarre behavior while her husband lay dying in the hospital. She made many statements to Nurse Ingle about her husband's life insurance policies. She also complained about Buddy's family. Anjette said she didn't want them coming from Texas and was trying to hold them off. But she also made a request of Jenny Ingle. If Buddy's family did show up, Anjette wanted the nurse to tell them that Buddy had received the best care. She also said she was going to make sure Buddy's mother didn't receive any of the money from his life insurance. Her husband was still alive when Anjette made these statements. On December 2, 1955, less than six months after they'd married, Joe Neal Gabbert died of kidney failure. Because doctors could not say what had caused his kidneys to fail, the county coroner told Anjette an autopsy of her husband had been ordered. Anjette said she absolutely refused to grant permission for an autopsy. But after the coroner explained that he didn't need her permission, Anjette became hysterical. 
She cried and said that Buddy had made her promise not to let him, quote, be cut up after his death. Even so, the autopsy was performed, but still yielded no clues as to what had caused Buddy Gabbert's horrible illness and death. Joe Neal Gabbert died at the age of 26, just six months after he married Anjette Donovan Lyles. Soon after becoming a widow for the second time, Anjette began acting even more strangely according to her restaurant staff. Anjette began criticizing her recently deceased husband. She said that Buddy had been mean to her and that she never should have married him. She also continued to reference the life insurance policies Buddy had left and made a point of saying that she had seen to it that his mother didn't receive a dime. Buddy Gabbert had two life insurance policies. One of them paid Anjette $10,000, or about $98,000 in today's dollars. Two months after they were wed, he'd applied for a second policy worth $20,000, but ultimately only a $10,000 policy was purchased, possibly because the premium was too high on the larger policy. Three months after the second policy was purchased, Buddy fell ill. With the money from Buddy's life insurance, Anjette, Marsha, and Carla finally moved into a home of their own. Anjette purchased a home in Macon. She also bought a new expensive car and updated her appearance. She dressed in flashier clothing and dyed her hair a platinum blonde. She changed her name from Gabbert back to Lyles. Anjette's former mother-in-law, Julia Lyles, also moved into the new house. She became her granddaughter's caretaker while their mother was working at the restaurant. One day, Jenny Ingle, the nurse hired by Anjette to care for Buddy, ran into Anjette on the street. She stopped to say hello and see how she was coping after her husband's tragic death. To her surprise, Anjette was curiously upbeat and told her that she was in love with another man who had a, quote, good job and a big life insurance policy, end quote. Anjette had begun dating Bob Franks, Buddy's former boss. It seemed rather quick to most people, and gossip began to circulate. Had Anjette been seeing Franks before her husband's death? As a pilot, Buddy had frequently been away from home, and now people speculated that Anjette may have had affairs, plural, while he was gone. These rumors may have started as a reaction to Anjette's new look and lifestyle changes, but the fact that Anjette didn't seem to grieve her husband's death at all may have also been a factor. But a real alarm began to sound when yet another person close to Anjette began suffering the effects of a mysterious ailment, Anjette's mother-in-law, Julia Lyles. The staff at Anjette's restaurant noticed an even bigger change in their boss's demeanor after her second husband, Buddy, died. She bought expensive clothes and a new Cadillac. She also began dating, and soon was seeing her deceased husband's former boss. They went out together often for a few months. Bob Franks took her to dinner and out to clubs. He would later describe Anjette as very attractive and affectionate. Anjette's two older children, Marcia and Carla, now age eight and five, were often left home in the care of their grandmother, Julia Lyles. Julia had moved into Anjette's home when she'd purchased the house, apparently to become the children's primary caregiver. But the restaurant staff report that Anjette had nothing good to say about her mother-in-law. In fact, she made downright rude and critical statements about Julia, saying she, quote, couldn't stand her. Anjette said that Julia had moved into her house without being invited. 
They also heard from Manjet about the argument she was having with her mother-in-law because Julia refused to have a will drawn up. Julia had another son, Joseph, and Anjet was worried that she would leave her estate, reportedly worth about $100,000, to him. Anjet felt that she and her daughters were entitled to Julia's estate. It became a point of contention, with Julia continuing to refuse to make a will. In August of 1957, Julia Lyles became ill. The symptoms were terrifying and familiar. She began vomiting blood, her skin took on a purple tint, and her legs swelled painfully. She was then hospitalized. Around this time, Anjet's staff also noticed something odd that happened frequently. Anjet would fill up a cup with juice or buttermilk and then take the cup into the bathroom along with her pocketbook. She'd emerge and leave the restaurant, saying she was going to see Julia. For someone she couldn't stand, Anjet spent a lot of time visiting her sick mother-in-law at the hospital. Anjet was seen frequently in Julia's room, trying to make her comfortable and feeding her liquids. As she had done when her husband Buddy was sick, Anjet began telling doctors and nurses that she expected the worst. I'm afraid she's not going to make it, she predicted about Julia, and it doesn't look like she's going to live, she'd say. Anjet also, astonishingly, produced a note she claimed was written by Julia, authorizing her to make all her funeral arrangements. This note was presented without being requested, and prematurely, I might add, as Julia was still alive and fighting for her life. Julia's condition worsened over the next few weeks, and after almost a month of suffering in agony from an unknown cause, she died on September 29, 1957, just 18 months after Buddy had died. Julia was buried beside her husband and her son, Ben Jr., who had preceded her in death from the same mysterious illness just five years earlier. A week after Julia Lyles died, Anjet produced Julia's will. She explained that she was finally able to persuade Julia to settle her estate before she died. The will, you will not be shocked to learn, designated Anjet as executor of her estate. Julia's assets were to be distributed in thirds, one-third to her surviving son Joseph, one-third to Anjet, and one-third to be held for her granddaughters Marcia and Carla, with Anjet in charge of the money until they reached the age of majority. Anjet deposited over $11,000 into her accounts at that time, about $107,000 in today's dollars. By now, there was speculation that Anjet was somehow causing the demise of the people around her. It was pretty apparent that she had benefited financially from the deaths of three people who were closest to her. Still, no one wanted to make such a horrible accusation without proof. Some armchair sleuthing was conducted by some of the restaurant employees. Why did Anjet take mugs of liquids into the bathroom before leaving the restaurant? And what was in the pocketbook she always had with her during these strange incidents? One of the employees was able to sneak a peek inside Anjet's purse and reported seeing a bottle of tarot ant poison. They weren't sure what to make of it, but thought they had to inform someone about their suspicions. While they were still in the process of figuring out who they should talk to, Anjet began exhibiting more disturbing behavior. Not long before Buddy Gabbert fell ill and died, Anjet began to express her irritation at her husband. She told her employees that she wished she had never married him. 
before her mother-in-law suffered the same fate, Anjette had also started bad-mouthing her. Now Anjette's irritable moods seemed to be focused on her nine-year-old daughter, Marcia. Employees now witnessed Anjette screaming and raging at the child for the slightest annoyance. Then Anjette's abuse escalated. She described her daughter as, quote, a Lyles-looking son of a bitch. And when she was especially angry, Anjette would scream at her daughter, I'll kill you. This would occur in full view of restaurant staff, who watched as Marcia cowered in fear. It seemed as if only Anjette's five-year-old daughter, Carla, could calm her mother down during these outbursts. Then on March 2, 1958, Anjette came into the restaurant with Marcia in tow. Marcia appeared to be ill. She seemed listless and was coughing. She complained of a headache and pleaded with her mother to take her home, but Anjette ignored her. One of the staff touched the child's forehead and announced that she was burning up with fever. Anjette continued to ignore her daughter. Marcia had been waiting for over two hours, and it was now close to 9 p.m., but Anjette still wasn't ready to go home. Suddenly, Marcia began vomiting violently, which finally got her mother's attention. But instead of appearing alarmed, Anjette just seemed annoyed as she took her daughter home. Who knows how much the poor child suffered over the next few days, but it wasn't until March 5th, three days later, that Anjette finally had Marcia admitted to the hospital. She was placed in the same room that her father, stepfather, and grandmother had occupied before they died. The doctors had barely begun to examine the little girl before Anjette was predicting her death. But Marcia rallied and recovered slightly while in the hospital. Like during Julia's illness, Anjette was seen bringing fruit juice and teas for her daughter to drink. And again, Anjette took her pocketbook into the bathroom along with the liquid before emerging and feeding it to her child. And still, the doctors did not put two and two together. But those who knew Anjette well and observed her day after day at the restaurant were sure she had a hand in causing her daughter's illness. The restaurant staff decided to send an anonymous note to Mrs. Nora Bagley, Julia Lyle's sister. The note read, Please come at once. She's getting the same dose as the others. Please come at once. Meanwhile, Anjette's behavior at her daughter's bedside became more problematic. Marcia's illness had taken a turn for the worst, and the child was suffering terribly. She was racked with bouts of violent vomiting that weakened her greatly. She had uncontrollable bleeding from the nose and mouth, and her kidneys began to fail. Marcia became delirious and suffered from hallucinations. She was terrified of beasts coming after her, insects attacking her, and was convinced that worms were crawling out of her fingers. Upon hearing this, Anjette just laughed, hospital staff members reported later. Anjette was also heard to say that Marcia would be going home to little Ben, her father, and her grandmother soon. Marcia died on April 5th, about a month after first falling ill. But this time, people would step in to unravel the truth about the cause of death. Had the hospital staff raised suspicions about Anjette Lyles? This is unknown, but while the child was hospitalized, the coroner received a call from Nora Bagley, Julia Lyles' sister. She raised questions about Anjette's role in her sister's death. Then Marcia died and the coroner decided to conduct an autopsy on the child's body to try and find answers. 
Perhaps this time Anjette was not informed of the autopsy being ordered, or maybe since Buddy had been autopsied and nothing was found, she wasn't concerned. But either way, the coroner, Lester Chapman, made a visual examination of the body's organs and noted nothing out of the ordinary. But the gossip mill was now running full tilt in Macon. The word was that Anjette Lyles was bumping off her family members for financial gain. The restaurant staff decided that enough was enough and sent an anonymous letter to the coroner. The letter said that Anjette was poisoning her daughter and further claimed the poison could be found in her home. Anjette's maid had reported asking Anjette about several bottles of ant poison she'd found in the home. Anjette replied that she had purchased it due to an infestation at the restaurant. The restaurant staff knew this was a lie. Since 1957, an exterminator had made monthly visits to treat the restaurant as well as Anjette's home for any pests. The letter also stated that Anjette also carried a bottle of poison inside her purse. Anjette had planned an elaborate funeral for her daughter. In March, the month before Marsha's death, she had ordered an expensive white casket to have her buried in. She also arranged for a church children's choir to sing at Marcia's funeral. She was to be buried with her favorite doll that was dressed as a bride and with a Bible in her hands. But before the funeral could be held, Coroner Lester Chapman began to conduct his own investigation. He purchased the same type of ant poison others claimed to have seen in Anjette's possession. He discovered that the formula contained arsenic. Then, a pathologist who worked for Bibb County, Dr. Leonard Campbell, ordered Marsha's funeral to be delayed to give him time to perform a second autopsy. He took tissue samples from Marsha's liver and kidneys and also had a sample of her hair clipped. They were then sent to the state crime lab in Atlanta for analysis. Marsha's funeral was finally held, and it was an elaborate affair. In fact, Anjette had held very extravagant funerals for each of her family members. It appeared that she loved a good funeral. Something Anjette was overheard to say after Marsha's funeral was chilling. Anjette reported that her surviving daughter, six-year-old Carla, quote, said she wants to go to heaven to be with Marsha. Anjette Lyles had buried two husbands, a mother-in-law, and a daughter before anyone began to piece together a disturbing pattern of behavior by her that pointed to her being responsible for their deaths. Thanks to the employees at Anjet's restaurant who finally contacted authorities to report their suspicions, the county coroner and pathologists sent Marsha's tissue samples away to be examined. Anjet was informed of the anonymous letter received by the coroner. She was also told that a second autopsy had been performed and they were awaiting test results. I imagine there was a beat in time where the doctor waited to see if Anjet had anything to say. She did not and didn't react, but just sat stone-faced. The following day, Anjette returned to the coroner's office. She brought along her daughter Carla and a bottle of ant poison. She directed Carla to tell the doctor about she and two other children were playing doctor and gave Marcia medicine. Anjette held up the bottle of ant poison, the medicine the child had taken, she claimed. Well, the doctor said, feigning alarm, and Jet had better call the other two children's mother to warn her about the poison. And Jet, cool as ice, picked up the local telephone book and looked up a number. She then dialed the phone and told the person on the other end about the poison the children had played with. The doctor, of course, would tell authorities about Anjet's visit and her story. 
Investigators contacted the mother, who said she never received a phone call, and in fact, her phone number was not listed in the phone book. And Jed had actually called her own home and spoken to her most likely very confused maid. And Jed continued to attempt to cover her tracks by producing a letter that she said had been discovered among Julia Lyle's possessions. She claimed it had been written by her mother-in-law, and in it, she confessed to poisoning her own son, Ben. She had also poisoned herself because she had been racked by guilt at what she'd done, the letter said. Julia also begged for Anjette's forgiveness for what she had done. Crime lab analysts would examine this letter and determine it was a forgery. Julia Lyle's signature had been copied by laying tracing paper over her real signature. Tracing paper was later found in Anjette's home. But Anjette's attempts to provide evidence of her innocence became a moot point when the tissue and hair sample results came back from the crime lab. High levels of arsenic were found to be present in Marsha's body. The coroner then had the body of Ben Lyles, Julia Lyles, and Buddy Gabbert exhumed and tested. There was evidence of arsenic poisoning in all of them. And Jet's home was searched, and several bottles of empty or nearly empty ant poison containing arsenic were found. More bottles were found at her restaurant, and one was even found in her purse when she was arrested on May 6, 1958. The grand jury heard all the evidence against Anjette Donovan Lyles. On June 10, 1958, she was indicted for murdering her daughter, Marcia. The prosecutor didn't try Anjette on the other three murders for which she was suspected, but they used her, quote, pattern of behavior in the deaths of these other three family members to make their case in court. The prosecutor told the jury that Anjette Lyles murdered for financial gain. She had received over $50,000 in payouts from life insurance claims. After the death of her first husband, Anjette received over $12,000 paid on his policies. In addition, she received $150 per month in survivor's benefits from the VA, which continued until she married Buddy Gabbard. Converting the value from $1,955 to today, the totals Anjette received would have been worth approximately $120,000 plus $1,500 a month in benefits. As for her second husband, a witness testified that three days before Anjette wed Buddy Gabbard, the Veterans Administration received a letter inquiring about his policy. Signed by Buddy, it specifically asked if his life insurance policy was still active and if the premiums had been paid. The state crime lab determined that this letter was also a forgery. After Buddy's death, Anjette received a payout of $10,000, or $98,000 in today's dollars. Two months after they married, a second policy was purchased on Buddy's life. Three months later, he fell deathly ill. And Jet collected an additional $10,000 on this second policy. We know that Anjette also received two-thirds of Julia Lyle's estate, one-third that was supposed to be held in trust for her two children. Of course, after Marcia died, her portion would belong to Anjette as well. Investigators also discovered that the will Anjette claimed had been written by Julia was a forgery. Hospital workers also testified that by the date Julia had allegedly signed it, she no longer had use of her hands. Julia was unable to even pick up a pen, much less sign her name. Prosecutors called witnesses to testify to similarities and circumstances surrounding each of the four poisoning deaths. 
and Jed began to complain about each of the deceased right before they fell ill. She fed liquids to each one over a number of days. She filled a mug or glass with juice, tea, or buttermilk. Do people really drink buttermilk? Before slipping off into another room with the mug and her pocketbook that held the poison. Prosecutors also told the jury that Anjette showed no remorse after the deaths of each of her family members, but did throw them elaborate funerals. A nurse said that while Buddy Gabbert suffered in agony, his wife merely acted annoyed and impatient. There were gasps in the courtroom when a witness testified about Anjette's laughter in response to her daughter's terrifying hallucinations. Anjette's attorneys called no witnesses nor produced any evidence at the trial. Instead, Anjette recited a long, unsworn statement, meaning she could not be cross-examined, something that was loud in the state of Georgia in 1959. Anjette insisted that she had not killed anyone. She claimed that she loved her daughter and both her husbands. She said that her first husband drank himself to death. And Buddy? Well, he'd had the rash before they were married, Anjette said. She also stuck to the story that Julia Lyles had killed herself, even after Ann Jett's maid took the stand to tell the jury that her boss asked her to tell investigators she'd found the letter in Julia's purse. The maid admitted that this was a lie. Ann Jett explained that she had a habit of laughing when she was afraid or anxious. It was this nervous habit that caused her to laugh when Marcia was so sick, she said. She also explained that no, she had not attempted voodoo spells to bring harm to others as the media had reported. Yes, Anjette said, she did sometimes light candles as a kind of ritual, again to dispel her anxiety. But she insisted there was nothing evil about this. She said she was a devout Christian. As if to illustrate this point, Anjette arrived to court each day of her trial carrying a small white Bible. It may have benefited Anjette to squeeze out a tear or two while talking about the deaths of the four people she claimed to love. Throughout the trial, she sat stone-faced, not showing any emotion whatsoever. Her eyes remained dry even when doctors and nurses testified about the long and painful death her little girl and husbands had suffered. A jury of 12 men took an hour to find Anjette Lyles guilty of Marcia's murder. The judge handed down her sentence. She would be remanded to prison where she would await her execution by electric chair. It would be the first time a white woman faced execution in Georgia. And Jet's sentence was appealed. During her time in prison, she claimed she had become deeply religious. She also tried to fake insanity when evaluated by prison psychologists. Her appeals were denied, and Anjette was transferred to death row at Reesville State Prison. But Georgia's governor and the State Board of Pardons and Parole were squeamish about sending a woman to the electric chair. Governor Ernest Vandeveer granted Anjette a stay of execution while the board took up her case. And Jet was brought before the board to plead for mercy. She now blamed her mother-in-law for the murders of both of her husbands and insisted that Julia had died by her own hand. And Jet now also claimed that her own mother, Jetta Donovan, killed Marcia. It appeared that there were no depths And Jet would not stoop to to save her own skin. Jetta had remained And Jet's most loyal supporter throughout her trial and her time behind bars but the board still could not bring itself to impose the death sentence on Anjette. However, they also knew that commuting her sentence would be met with outrage by the public. So, what to do? They decided to ask the governor to appoint a sanity commission to have Anjette's mental state evaluated. 
Since Anjette had tried this tactic before, I can only imagine she must have given the performance of her life, unless she was truly insane. The Sanity Commission returned with its report declaring Anjette Lyles legally insane. She was diagnosed with chronic paranoid schizophrenia. According to the doctors who examined her, Anjette reported experiencing hallucinations, including seeing angels flying around the room. By law, a person declared legally insane could not be executed in Georgia. Anjette was transferred to Central State Hospital, also known as Milledgeville. The caveat being, however, should she ever be deemed cured, her death sentence would be reinstated. Anjette remained in Milledgeville Hospital for 18 years. She passed some of her time by reading other patients their fortunes using playing cards. Apparently, tarot cards were forbidden. And Jet Donovan Lyles died on December 4, 1977, at the age of 52. The cause of death was listed as a heart attack. She was buried in the Donovan family plot beside her husband Ben and daughter Marcia. Until her final days, she proclaimed her innocence. Here are some questions to consider about this case. Was Anjette Lyles mentally ill? When I consider this, one of the things that stands out is that she did not do a very good job of hiding her crime. She was also very obvious about her concern about the insurance money she'd be receiving even before her mother-in-law and buddy had died. She expressed hatred and wished death upon those she ultimately killed, except for her first husband. But that didn't happen until shortly before it seemed she was planning their deaths. There may have been an additional motive for her first husband's death. She was very angry with him for selling the restaurant, along with the money she would receive after his death from his insurance policy could have been double motive. It appears to me that she probably married Buddy Gabbert specifically for the insurance money. Three days before they were married, she was already trying to get information from the Veterans Administration about his life insurance policy. She then told people that she had never loved him and she showed no grief when he died. So why did she need so much insurance money? She had already received money from her first husband, that I assume went to help to pay for the restaurant and get her back on her feet. Then after Buddy died, why did she feel the need to next plan the death of her mother-in-law? Didn't she already have enough money? Had she spent it all already on the restaurant, house, and cars? It seems unlikely. At this point, was she getting a thrill out of the act of killing itself? Her mother-in-law was actually helpful to her. She watched her children while she worked at the restaurant. So why kill her? Was it simply greed, or was there also hatred there? And why turn on her daughter so soon after her mother-in-law's death? Did she really have hatred for all the Lyles? And if she did, why did she change her name back to Lyles after Buddy died? Here's another thought. Did she start to become hateful towards her daughter, knowing that she was going to poison her next for another insurance payout? Perhaps it was a way to distance herself from any feeling that she might have for her daughter knowing that her daughter was likely to die. And did the press make too big a deal of Anjette's interest in voodoo or magic? Or as they thought, was this a sign of mental illness? She was also described as very superstitious and used the magic to, quote, make sure things went her way. That could just be an interest and may not be tied to any kind of, of mental illness. But it's something to consider and something that the media had reported back in 1959. It was said since she was a child that she had a way with people, a, quote, easy charm, and could bend people to her will. What this tells me is that she had a manipulative personality 
she also demonstrated selfishness and perhaps narcissism as well. Maybe Anjette never loved anyone at all, or at least no one as much as herself. This, to me, brings to mind the case of Marie Hilly. If you remember, she was also a spoiled child and charmed men all of her life. She also killed her husband and tried to kill her children for insurance, also by poisoning. You can listen to the fascinating case about Marie Hilly in a two-part episode, episodes number 56 and 57 of Once Upon a Crime. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Don't forget to get your questions in for our 200th episode celebration bonus Q&A show. Go to truecrimepodcast.com and click on the red microphone in the corner to record your question to have it played on the special episode. If you'd rather send your question in writing, you can email me at esther at truecrimepodcast.com. That's E-S-T-H-E-R at truecrimepodcast.com. Make sure to get it in before the March 31st deadline. Thanks. Also, check out this week's episode of the podcast, Podcasts We Listen To, to hear my chat about true crime with host Jeremy. It was a really fun conversation. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and research assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another.